Hello everyone and welcome back to the Misunderstood World Podcast. I'm your host Bill. And I'm your co-host Dylan. And today we have a very special episode. Today we are going to talk about the history of the Labour Party. Now this is an early early week episode. So normally we would have had a <coughs> excuse me. Normally we would have had a guest on. But um if we don't have a guest on then me and Dill, as you, as some of your listeners might know, we're going to pick a topic and we're going to basically spend a lot of time breaking that topic down and talking about it. Isn't that right, Dill? Yes. So if we can't find a guest, what we'll do is we'll take topics from our interests or what we're sort of not specialists in, but have a good knowledge in and we'll talk about that for two hours instead of having a guest. So this is just... Um, just, this is if we don't have a guest on, we'll, we'll talk about the topic and, it, you know, about hobbies as well, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, like I said, it's um the topic today is one, I think, quite close to Dill's heart. Well, it uh, is. It is the history of the Labour Party. As some of you out there might know, Dylan is an avid la- a Labour supporter, campaigner, and just a big supporter, aren't you, Dill? Well, you yeah, know. I mean, I'm a member Before of the Before we get into the history of the Labour Party, Dill, why don't you just tell the listeners what you've been involved with the Labour Party oh, before? Okay, brilliant. So, for listeners who don't know, um, I joined the Labour Party when I was 20, when I was in a university. I've always been a Labour voter, and my family were Labour voters. Um, I've always had this passion for politics and interest in politics, really. Um, I think a lot of people who know me would kind of envision me going into politics when I'm a bit older. Um, so but I've always had this um, enjoyment of all sorts of politics. I love watching, polit- you know, PMQs. I love watching Senate debates. I love watching, um, you know, all, all sorts, really. I love watching the American uh, debates with the con- with the Congress, with the Democrats and the Republicans. So I do have a genuine interest in politics, and uh, yeah, this is about my knowledge of the Labour Party. So before we, we start off, I'll tell you a bit about my, myself, really about it. Um, so I joined when I was 20 and then basically I started, um, camp- I did a bit of not really campaigning because I was in the middle of my degree. So I didn't do a lot of campaigning, but I went to my first meeting. This would have been, I think, 20... Is this, I think this would have been around 2018, 2019, yeah. uh, just before the general election of Jeremy Corbyn. I joined. I didn't do a lot of canvassing because I was in the middle of my degree. And then, unfortunately, um, you know, we, we lost that majority. We, we, we didn't really lose the majority. We lost that election quite a lot. We gave the Conservatives a massive majority since 1980s when it was in Thatcher. And... Um, so after that, I um, I then had the Senate elections, which is the Welsh Parliament. I did some um, before our, our, my CLP. Oh, so for people who don't know, a CLP is a community Labour Party. That's what we refer to um, Labour parties as CLPs, basically. Um, so for my CLP, Clude West, which is it covers the county of Conway and Denbyshire. Um, but I think the boundary lines are getting changed over. So I, um, I was, I did some canvassing before we had a candidate for the CNF. It This was during the pandemic in you know, 2020, so we didn't actually have, we didn't actually do a lot of door to door knocking. Start. I had to do uh, call ups or dial ups. So what I would do is I would um, sit on my computer every week uh, for a Saturday for about two three hours. I'd call Cluid West. I call Vale of Cluid. 
and I called Wrexham. I call and I think I called a few constituencies in South Wales, just seeing, sort of testing the mood, if that makes sense, and seeing. Uh, yeah, this was voluntary, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't get paid for it because you know I was a late member, so we didn't really get paid for it. Um, so it was just you know sort of testing the moods. So this is before we even had a candidate in candidate selected so once we got a candidate selected who was uh, Joshua Hurst I quite like Joshua I voted for him um, He he's only a year older than me so he wasn't that old um, really and I thought politically we were very similar so uh, his was sort of the first camping experience I did I did a place in called um, when we were allowed to do door to door. I went door to door around in an area called uh, Colwyn Heights, which I felt which was quite good. We thought it was a conservative area, area, but surprisingly, everyone was like, "No, we want we want change. We want to give a vote Labour." And then I also did um, Calandalus, which is my local village of where I was living with my parents. Um, that was very promising as well. And I think I did another area, but I can't remember me for life of me. Um, so after after doing that, unfortunately, Josh didn't get in the Senate. Um, um, he was beaten by Darren Miller, who was a Conservative Senate member. So that was that was a shame because we felt like we did a lot. But, you know, I, I think it's hard because I think the area is quite a Conservative area. But hopefully now we have a weak Conservative government, we'll get a Labour MP for Cludus and a, and a Labour Senate member. Uh, in the Welsh Parliament. Um, so after after that, you know, I went to a few, you know, I, I went on the meetings, they were all online, which was a bit gutting, re- gutted, really, because, you know, you don't really have the atmosphere uh, to a normal um, meeting with all everyone there. It was very much more formal. I, I felt it was very much digitalised. Um, but no, I, I went to the meetings. They were they were okay, um, and then I decided to run as a councillor. I did mention this before my first podcast. Of listeners want to listen to that, but I, I ran as a councillor for a village called Clisfine, which was a village above my own, literally. I wouldn't even say a mile away. Way, um, unfortunately, I didn't get in. Um, the independent beat me, um, but I did beat the, beat the Conservative uh, sitting council, the incumbent. Um, so I, I came second, um, which wasn't bad for a first attempt. I wouldn't think, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn. I mean, I, I was gutted, and I remember you, Bill, because you you went canvassing with me around Clisfine and Pylus, and um, you did, you know, I was quite upset and down that I didn't get in, really. Um, yeah, but but no, valuable experience. Definitely, you know, and uh, yeah, I was really proud of you for doing that. Oh, though, thank you. you know, like I said, though, there's not a lot of lads their age that would no, actually go no. and run a campaign like you did. You know what I mean? You know, going door to doors, running a proper campaign. You had your own leaflets and everything, which yeah. I still have in the boot of my car. So, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think if you're asking my, my political allegiance, I'm more centre-left of the party. Um, I'm much more of a moderate. I wouldn't really say I'm on the left of the party. I'm much more centre. So I think I'm. I have a good understanding of the economy and how the economy should be run. Um, but I'm still quite. Um, I do have good leftward policies, like I believe in nationalising energy, uh, NHS infrastructure. But I also believe you need to have a, a strong and fertile economy to grow businesses. But yeah, unlike yeah. the Tories who use trickle down, I think you should grow it from the bottom up, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so Dale, um, for the listeners, I think this would be a good way to start, uh, another good way to start off this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you explain what, what our policies of a middle left person would be? And then... Uh, the way uh, far left 
person would be. What's the difference between those two? Well, you got to understand, right, I consider myself to be a socialist. Now, I know socialist is quite a red word. People immediately think, oh, you're a communist, but you're not. Because to be honest with you, socialist or socialism um it, it covers a it covers a, it covers it it's it covers a broader things um someone on the center left like myself um probably has a better understanding of businesses and sees the importance of businesses in the economy um so they're, they're much more pro business um but yet they also do believe in you know good spending for the hs investing in the hs in education um they're more, um, they're more sort of not necessarily pro-military, but uh, there are a lot of people who are on the f- f- who are on the fringes of um, la- labour, and especially um, people who are like, say, say, communists who wouldn't like the police. Well, I'm still a big believer in police and um, law enforcement and military action. I'm, I'm still a big believer. I'm not anti-military or anti-police. I'm pro those things. Um, also, in terms of Trident. Um, someone who was say much more far left, who say a socialist or a communist would be anti-Trident. But I'm at the moment, I wouldn't say I'm pro-Trident, but I do believe there is definitely a need for it. And, um, but I do believe that, that there can be a world within about maybe 50 or 60 years where we wouldn't need Trident, but it would need an international effort. But I wouldn't believe to voluntarily give up, give up Trident. We'd have to have negotiation with America, with China, with Russia, with North Korea, with France, Germany, all the big players of the country to sort of come to, to come for, nu- for mutual nuclear disarmament, basically. Right, yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. That is the um, because you know, oh, the far, yeah. the f- the far yeah. left, I was just gonna say, uh, the far left, we you don't particularly like the far left, yeah, really. I think a lot of their beliefs come from a good place, but I just think that their actual ideas and their beliefs are unelectable. They can't, yeah, I think the far left is quite violent. I think it can be because people yeah. get passionate about it and then they forget what they're doing. You know, they'll, 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 some, some of them, not all of them might, 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 might be quite violent and they get violent, but which is no excuse again. Cause I, I remember reading, um, sort of reading a book called the third man who was Pete by Peter Mandelson or Lord Peter Mandelson. He was one of the, uh, key players in new labor or Blair's labor. And he described, he was, I think he was a councillor, and I can't remember the council, somewhere in London. And he, the council, the, the council leader at the time was quite far left himself, and people were protesting. And he didn't want to use law enforcement to control the protests because they were going, they were going out, they were going out of hand and rioting. He was like, no, no, you need to protect your citizens and put police in. So I, I would take the view of, say, more Peter Mandelson. Of you know, we still need law enforcement, and if a protest does go out of hand and gets into a spot of bother with rioting, then obviously, police. We know we need to have a riot police there to make sure the public's okay and damages us, and there isn't any damage caused on public property and stuff like that, and private business owners. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I, I believe the same thing. Mm. So, um, right then, though, let's let's bring it all, all the way back to the history of the Labour Party. Uh, why don't you take the reins, Till, and uh, start off with the history of the Labour Party? Thank you, Bill. I will. So, the Labour Party is quite 
a new party uh, in terms of conservatives and the Lib Dem Democrats. Uh, they became, I suppose, they sort of became a party in 1893 when they elected their first leader, uh, Keir Hardley, who was a Scottish miner. So basically, what happened was was that Keir Hardley was a big believer in the Liberal Party uh, of Gladstone's Liberal Party. However, he felt like that despite all that was it didn't really rep represent the working man if that makes sense because politics back then was very different to the different to the politics now like yeah. for for example it would only been in recent years that uh, working men were allowed to vote and also if you wanted to be an mp back then you um, needed to be quite wealthy um because in higher class as well yeah well because the job wasn't paid so you needed to be uh, you needed to be back financially basically by by people you need donors basically to actually um fund your um salary and your li living expenses and whatnot um, so Keir hardly, even though he was a believer in the Labour Part Liberal Party, and they did do quite a bit to um, help the working man. He didn't feel like he they he, they understood the working man, if that made sense. So yeah. he was a miner, went in, grew up for a poor uh, family in Scotland, um, and had to go to work at the age of eleven to in a in an area by South Glasgow to um, to. Um, you know, help put you know food on the table and whatnot. So, uh, so when he got into, you know, he didn't actually know how to read or write until he was about seventeen. He he learned writing because he left school at, at eleven and went to work in the mines. He learned writing by writing on the stone on mines, really? like scratch. Yeah, yeah. So he was very charismatic, and um, in his twenties, he became uh, he he kind of got people to back to around him. To, to come around him um, and try and like have him as a leader. He became leader of the Lemership, Lemership, Lemership I can pronounce that right, the, Le the Lemership mining community um, in Glasgow and um, to become their leader. And he, um, he managed to get into, after there was a big strike in 1889 with dock workers in London and it happened in Bradford. I think there was a steelworks in Bradford and he basically they had their first meeting so you had a mix of socialists uh trade unions and workers that came around elected him as a labor leader so he got into parliament and um yeah he became the first mp but it was quite it was quite funny really because you had all these aristocratic um mps and these really liberally MPs would go around in their top hats and shirt ties. And here he'd come with like a deer stocking hat, tweed jacket, shirt, trousers. And, you know, he caused quite an uproar because they were yeah, like, what imagine. is this man doing? You know, all, yeah. these, all these English people are like, oh, what's the Scottish person? Yeah, doing? yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Britain was a very different time back then. It was much more tradition and the social status. And how they got him to fund him as a politician was he got all the unions to, uh, to pay a little bit of money towards him so he could uh, become an MP full time. Right. And uh, some of his beliefs 
they were quite modern beliefs at the time. He uh, wanted women, not modern progressive beliefs, I should say. Um, he wanted uh, women to have the vote. He supported the suffragette movement. He wanted to abolish the House of Lords. He wanted free education. Um, he got a lot of slack for um, women's suffragettes wanting women to give the vote, though. Um, he did got a lot of slack for supporting it. He also wasn't a big believer in... Uh, World War One. Either he was not not a big fan at all, but the Labour movement did gain did gain um, momentum in 1906 in the general election. They won 29 seats, so they had 29 MPs there. Yeah, they did because they they surpassed the Liberal Party as the main yeah, opposition yeah. to the Conservatives in the 1920s. Because usually, you, in the before the Labour Party, the Liberal Party would have been the party for you if you were like working class. Um, unfortunately, again, they kind of, you know, they let the people down and they felt like they became too... I think what happened was the Liberal Party was very much alienated. They got alienated and got separated from their their their, um, their supporters and that will cause the make for new Labour Party, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then in the 1930s and the 1940s, it really stressed national planning and are you using like nationalization like of industry as a tool and in line with clause six of the original constitution of the Labour Party, which called the common ownership of the means of production, distribution yeah. and exchange and the best obtainable system of popular administration and control for each of the service. You know, this. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was basically um the original constitution of the Labour Party it, that clause was eventually revisited in 1994 but yeah that's kind of that's originally when they were starting out that's what they kind of aimed to do yes well I'll explain why that happened because in 1984 Neil Kinnock who was a Welshman I think he was the first Welsh leader um, very similar to Tony Blair Keir Starmer was much of a moderate so they had to make a few changes to the constitution basically um, and that's why they um, that's why they changed the that's why they changed the um, constitution. Now, the first Labour Prime Minister was a gentleman called the Ramsay MacDonald, who was also also from Scotland, yeah. and um, he he got in through. Um, he got in, um, didn't stay there too long. I think he was Labour leader for about. Um, I think it was. It was ninety. He got in nineteen twenty four. Yes, and then. Um, he must have been there for four years. Oh yeah, nineteen from nineteen twenty four, and then up until nineteen twenty nine till nineteen thirty one. Yeah, he wasn't there too long, but um, I think you know some of the policies he had was he introduced the uh, five hundred thousand new um, low pay cheap rent houses for workers, which is a good thing. He also yeah. did a lot for um, he did a regional he did a regional act, which is means he'd give money out to. Uh, communities which were hit bad by the Great Depression. Um, he was quite um, unpopular with Labour people because he believed that uh, the First World Con- the, f- the, the reason why the First World uh, he was against the First World War as well, but he he believed excuse me he believed that um, it wasn't due to a German intervention. It was because of Europe failed system. That's what he believed. So he was very yeah. unpopular with uh, a lot of Labour members and Labour voters for that saying that he was seen. Yeah. Him and half of his cabinet split with the mainstream yeah. party and were denounced as traitors, weren't they? Well, yeah, yeah, because it was like seems un- un- unpatriotic. I mean, I suppose his sides were 
that it was a Serbian who assassinated an Austrian, so why would we get involved? But he, I don't think he understood the, compl- the complexities of how how it works with foreign relations. It's that countries and allies, I don't think he had an understanding, but I will say his, his story is quite inspiring. He, um, he was a son to a single mum, and, you know, he became prime minister. So I think, you know, credit where credit is due. He did quite extremely well for himself. He did. He did indeed. And then after the, um, the Labour was a junior partner in the wartime coalition. from Yes. The yes. They, yeah. Yeah. And then so, sorry, I, I didn't mean to talk over you then, Bill. Um, that's all right, Bill. I forget. Basically, basically, what happened was, was that... Um, so before Churchill, there was a prime minister called Neville Chamberlain, and Neville Chamberlain didn't seem a strong leader, and I don't think he wanted to go to war with Hitler. Um, unfortunately, it was seen as weak, so he, you know, he had to resign. And um, basically, I, I remember them saying actually um, that the Labour Party, Clement Attlee, basically how it went was because conservatives weren't that popular at the time because of you know the war, uh, but they were still going to win, but not by a lot. So what they sort of said was. Um, Clement Attlee, who was uh, the Labour leader at the time, said, we'll only go into coalition with the Tories if Churchill's Prime Minister, because Churchill was very much a pro-war, he was seen as a war Prime Minister, Prime Minister for wartime, so it made perfect sense to be tough on the Nazis and tough on the Axis powers, so he seems a strong fit, so I think there was quite a lot of outcall for Churchill and Attlee to work together basically so but it's quite interesting because a lot of people kind of viewed um churchill as a wartime prime minister so Churchill would be going like you know to thinking about defense strategies going to like you know europe and like other places to try and um you know try to talk about the war efforts and try and you know use you know your weapons and resources but actually the labor government was the government at home it was our government who was considered looking after everything while that was going ahead so um churchill was seen as more of just yeah he's good for war but he's not really good for a home prime minister so basically um Attlee called for a election in 1945 and he won by a massive majority and i think yeah, it, it was a landslide wasn't it yeah first time labor won with a massive majority and i think what they were running on was look you know, peace, that's what they were kind of running on. I, if you look at the old electoral posters, there's one saying, vote for peace at home, not just abroad, vote Labour, with a big V in it. And this was uh, very common because uh, a lot of the military actually voted for Labour, um, you know, because they wanted peace. They were like, we don't want there to be another war. We just want peace. We need to, we need to fix at home because what it was inherited, because, you know, Britain been for a war, the Blitz, there was math economic, um, you know, I think we, you know, went into recession, uh, but some of the stuff Atlee did was quite phenomenal. He nationalized a lot of things. He introduced the NHS, the welfare state. He also, he also introduced, um, you know, social housing. He nationalized the fifth of the whole economy. Yeah, we yeah. So he nationalized the fifth of the economy, which is very good. So it got people out of the war and into, um, you know, a job, which was very, very good. It got people back into work and boosted the economy. Um, but yeah, I know the fifth fifth economy was nationalized under his government and a lot of um post labor governments or post labor oppositions and party you know were based off them as actually he was seen as like the poster child almost the golden child because he brought in these reforms 
Yeah, and then he also joined NATO as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a big believer in uh, joining NATO, and he he wanted to help defeat the cold, you know, the Soviets at the Cold War. He uh, helped. He was a big believer in the uh, Berlin airlift from the Marshall Plan from the Americans. He wanted to really, uh, you know, stop. I suppose the reason why he did that was he didn't want there to be World War Three with the Soviets, and he got to understand was if there would have been World War Three at that time, it would have hundred percent been a nuclear war. So he just wanted to just sort of not go to war with the Soviets, but try and uh, give supplies to where they were doing harm to like West Germany and all the people from Western society side. So he was a big believer in NATO, a big believer in, you know, we need to sort of come together to to fight evil, so to speak. Yeah, definitely he was. Yeah, he was definitely. So where did the Labour Party go after him though? Well, Clement Attlee was a big modernizer. He wanted to have a health service, joining NATO. The Labour Party, unfortunately, he didn't get in afterwards. Churchill got re-elected. Um, and then we had basically a string of conservative leaders. We had Winston Churchill. We had Howard Macmillan. And we had basically had four conservative leaders. Now, these conservative leaders leaders were all Etonian educated. Um, they all went to Eton and Oxford, except Churchill, who went to Eton and Sandrium to join the military. Um, so but basically, the aristocracy class was still there. And then afterwards, we, in uh, 1964, we had a leader called Harold Wilson. Now, Harold Wilson was a very unique, unique uh, person. He was from uh, North Yorkshire, and he wanted to... He wanted to. Um, he won. He he was from North Yorkshire there and went to a public school. Won a scholarship. Went to a public school. Then later right. Oxford. But he came from very humble beginnings. He his accent wasn't a posh accent. It was a very north northern accent, which was quite uh, surreal at the time, you know. And he he said, um, you know, there were very many differences. Actually, I do have a bit of his speech actually when talking about that. Um, Yes, so he, so here, here it was. Here, here's a speech. He goes, "I want to set out a new Britain for 1964. It is a year that we can take on. We could take on. We could take on the change into our hands for um for change, um a clean street to get rid of the more. I'm paraphrasing here. The more the more goose." Tory issue and refit, refit Britain into a new proud image. So basically what he's saying is he wanted to modernise Britain. Um, Howard Wilson is quite an interesting character because he he was... Um, he was... Uh, he started on quite... The, arguably at the time, quite the left of the party. Um, so Nive Bennon, who was House Secretary under Clement Attlee, he actually resigned from the uh, position when the NHS started to um, take off dentures and wigs for um, for the NHS started privately charging them. He also joined that, so he he was regarded as, regarded as quite um, a left wing politician at the time. But then he later became much more of a moderate when he knew. I you know he I don't know I think he realised in order to Labour to win, um he has to be much more on the centre ground and to be about modernising. In fact, I got this speech here actually. Uh, again, I'm paraphrasing. It goes: Britain is going to be be fight for everyone. It will be the party for the rest. Basically, what it's saying is, 
is that it, it, it's 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 we're gonna light the light with white revolution, and uh, we need to stop the old methods from both sides of the industry and embrace the language of scientific and uh, scientific language and learning. So basically, if you don't really understand from that speech, what he was sort of saying was. Um, okay, industry needs to change as well, but also the trade unions need to change as well. They change their methods and modernize. So he was a big believer in modernization and became much more of a moderate of the party. Um, very fascinating. Um, so the acts he delivered, actually, I find quite modernizing at the time. He um, he he uh, abolished the um, he abolished the um, death the death penalty act. And he also decriminalized homosexuality. He also right, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. He also he also had he also helped open the open university, which was education for all. Basically, you could be working, um, or he helped opened it. He could be working and will still offer you a full time degree, or not full time, part time degree, I should say, to get a degree and to add increase your knowledge or get a better job. That's fair. You know what? That, for him to introduce that, I think that's a brilliant thing. Yeah, in the 1960s as well, Bill. You know, this is because those that you don't understand, uh, for your listeners out there, 1960s was quite a revolutionary time. It started off the hit, especially in the late 1960s. You know, you had in America, you had Martin Luther King, civil rights, you also had Vietnam, you also had all this hippie era and free love. People were much more liberal. So in comparison to how it was before, people kept their affairs quite private. Um, you couldn't really have some, you couldn't really be in love or have a relationship with some same-sex marriage. But he, he kind of changed that, which I find absolutely remarkable. For him um, to um, abolish... Uh, the death penalty as well. Yeah, well, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I think he kind of felt again. It's a thing from the past. We need to move on. It's what would be considered very old-fashioned, and we have to move on with the future. So to do that, you yeah, know, it was a big. Yeah. It's quite. I think the death penalty is quite a draconian idea. Mm. I, I I think it's quite. Like I understand criminals do bad things, and they, you know, the only penalty. Because um, there's some states in America that still have it, don't they? Yes, yes, it's absolutely, and it's not it's not that popular either. Um, I know places like Alabama and um, Texas have the death penalty, but it, these uh, companies who supply the lethal injection, if it's for people on death penalty, they'll 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 let it. They won't give it to them straight away. They have to have a queue because it's not it's not in the public interest to to do that because it's a lot to take a life from someone. I know. If any of the religious listeners out there, the Bible says an eye for an eye. But the argument is, you know, you're, you're taking someone's life, and also there's been instances with death penalty in America. I'm sure, I'm sure there was witnesses over here in Britain for the death penalty when it happened that innocent people will die. There was insufficient evidence, and yeah, you know, I and there's a film. There is a film about it, and um, I don't know what it is. I know. Um, Jamie Fox uh, plays like a lawyer, I think, and it's about this um, chap in America who was black and he was uh, convicted for a crime. He didn't do it, but it's because of at the time, you know, the racial uh, tension at the time. So they convicted, they, they, they put him, put, 
Tip, tip against his crime. I think he was kidnapped, kidnapped the girl, but he wasn't even there or something. And he had to wait on death row. But then it found out, basically they found out he proved him innocent and let go. But it's a very strong thing to take a life to another life. You know, no matter what the person did, it is not an easy thing to do. So I do think, as you would agree, Jacronian, and it's from, you know, you know, a, a Britain, which is from the past, not from the future. Exactly, you know. And think about it. If, he, if, Harold, if Harold Wilson didn't abolish that how long would that have gone on for like you know what i mean oh that's a good question because there are you know there are quite a lot of people still in favor of the death penalty um you know i you know i know i think pre patel who was the former home secretary is in favor of death penalty but it's again it's a very difficult one to do i think you know it's it's a lot to take a life especially if the evidence doesn't correlate and they're shown to be not guilty you know it's it's a difference from a prison sentence because a prison sentence you can just let the person out but once you're taking someone's life you can't undo it you know so it's not an easy thing to um it's not an easy thing to sort of um do really you have to be a hundred percent sure that yes this person committed the crime Exactly, and I, I think especially in the UK, if if that if that was trying to get on, mm. um, not a lot of people in the UK would stand for that, and there'd be riots in the street and everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we're a very different society now. I think if there, if there was a government to uh, bring back death penalty, it'll be met with thing. You know, it's it's you know because it's such a brutal thing. It's such a brutal medieval concept to sort of say, yeah, we're going to kill this person. You know, it's 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 again, as I said, it's it's in the past. It's it's not for modern society to use a death penalty. Well, it's like you know, uh, Scandinavian countries. They obviously don't have the death penalty, but also their prison systems are absolutely like mind blown. Mm. So what they do is they don't even have like a prison type of place. No. What they do is they send these the convicts. So obviously they get convicted of. I was watching a video on there the other day. It was. Uh, this guy, he got convicted of murder. I think it could have been Sweden or somewhere. And they send him, like, out in the middle of nowhere in, like, this house. And, like, he has, like, people that help him, like, rehabilitate. Re- rehabilitate. Yeah. You know, and I understand... There, I under, I can understand that... Say, So, say, say he killed, like, a member of someone's family. He, obviously, he did kill a member of someone's... Oh, you can tell that they're obviously not going to be happy that he still has a life. You know what I mean? That he's yeah. still living a life mm-hmm. and that he's out there and he's not actually in a proper jail and he's not suffering. They're rehabilitating him. Uh, but then I see the other, the other side of the argument as well. I see the argument that everyone deserves a second chance. Uh, and if you rehabilitate someone, they can become a functioning member of society again. So there's two different arguments or two. Yeah. Both of the arguments hold way. You know, they oh, do hold oh, way. of course, absolutely, absolutely. But those, um, where was country you said again? Sorry, Bill. Scandinavian countries like Sweden yeah. and Norway and all that. It was Scandinavian countries. They focused on reform, reforming the individual so they become a become a member of society again. While other prison systems like our prisons and America's, um, sorry, our prison system and Americans' prison system focuses more on just punishment. And the argument is, if you just focus on punishment, um, you know, depending on what it is, if it's just something like minor crime, they're more likely to reoffend. So you've got to have a look at it like that. If they're just going to reoffend, what's the point? You know, if they're minor crimes.
Bill? Yeah. You still there? I'm still here, yeah. Alright, you just cut off for a few seconds there, I think. Oh, did I? <laughs> Sorry yeah. about that. No, it's alright, it's alright, you're back now. So um so we've got to the we've got through to the uh Harold Wilson, but then Labour got in again in nineteen seventy four, didn't they? Seventy six, yes, Jimmy Callahan. Um, no, but no, Wilson Wilson was Wilson and James Callahan because Wilson was there from nineteen seventy four. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Wilson and Callahan got in. Now, unfortunately this was quite an awkward situation. Um when Labour got in, the economy wasn't doing great, strikes were 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 increasing um and they didn't really like how the um how the Labour government was handling it at that at that time period. Um you had the winter disconnect dis- discontent was when very much similar to here, prices went up basically um during the winter. So very similar to here. And um yeah there was sort of a you know cost of living crisis so to speak. And then, obviously, when Wilson resigned, I think it was due to hell, ill health. I think he had Parkinson's. And later, you know, Jimmy Callahan took his place. Um, Callahan, you know, he did his best, but I think it was very difficult for him as a person to do a lot. He was inherited, not a great economy. Um, some of the policies he did do, though, was um, the Dangerous Wild, Wild Animals Act of 19, uh, 1976. What this act did was it um, it people buying wild animals as pets because before then you could buy like a lion cub, very similar to uh, Joe Exotic. Uh, people could yeah. buy lion cats and cubs and take them home. Well, they banned that because you know it's dangerous and it's unfair on the animal as well. You know, having a wild animal as a pet, not as a you know, having as a pet really shouldn't be pets because you know they're not meant to be domesticated. No, well, uh, you can see, you know, there's and the argument for that is like, you know, people don't, some people don't believe in zoos, do they? Like actual normal zoos. No, no, but, they don't. But the counter argument for that is, I think zoos are in a way a necessary evil because if you didn't have zoos, there'd be a, <coughs> excuse me, there'd be a lot of species on this planet that would be extinct now. Mm. And they, they would have went extinct like in the last 100 and 200 years. It's conservation, it's because, isn't it? Yeah, it's because of the conservation eff- efforts of zoos and it's for certain species that those animals have now made a recovery. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And he also redid the Race Relations Act, which now, now we and now under the um, under the Clem Attlee government, they had equal pay, right? I think it was either Clem Attlee or Hag Wilson's Act who had... Uh, the equal act, so it, it helped equal pay between men and women and other race and other minorities. But the Race Relations Act, which Callahan brought in, helped more towards people of different skin colours have a fair pay act, which I think was phenomenal. You know, made sure that they were on the same wage as say someone who was white. Yeah, exactly. And um, didn't wasn't there a split with David Owen and others forming the Social Democratic Party as well? during that time yes because um of labor some people thought labor was getting a bit too radical so they split and made their own party that made sense made them more of a moderate wing i suppose but yeah that you are right there was a split yeah anger so and so uh resulted in the status so yeah so and then did, did so from we labor was there from 1974 to 1979 and then yes, did they not get in did they not get in until nineteen? 
97, yeah. 97 then. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that, but I'm going to talk yeah. about the leaders. So <laughs> the reason why that happened, Bill, was that the the, the, the party membership decided we'd want, they wanted someone much more um, radical with Michael Foote. So they he became leader um, in, you know, in you know, in 1980, when Patrick became prime minister, he became leader of the opposition. Um, he was quite a radicalist. He was a very principled man, and he'd give you give talks about interesting things. But obviously, a lot of his beliefs, you know, wouldn't um, wouldn't be able to work. But he was very principled. But he was much more of the left wing of the Labour Party. Um, some of his policies were uh, massive public investment. Uh, which isn't a bad thing, I agree with. Um, health health and social care boosts. Um, here's where I don't really agree with him, um, and here's where he kind of lost a lot of his support. He wanted, he was very much against Trident, wanted to denuclearize Britain, uh, wanted to um, have talks in Geneva about, um, wanted to have talks in Geneva about uh, having weapon disarmament. And this wasn't very good because again, this was like in the middle of the Cold War, so we needed to have um, we needed to have nuclear back weapons back then because if we didn't, you know, you know the Soviets would have nuked Britain. And he also wanted to do, um, get rid of the U.S. bases in um, Britain, which is bad because the U.S. nuclear base, because again, it would sour our relations between Britain and American. And if you think during that time, you had um, if he did come to power. You would have had Reagan, who was very right wing of the American uh, presidency. He was very right wing of the American, he was right wing of the Republican Party. Then you also had him as very left wing in Britain. It wouldn't really work very well as an international relations because neither of them are moderates. And I can imagine if Reagan would not have thought that would have went well if um, you know uh, Michael Foote was getting to power. But you know what? He was a very principled man. But it's just that his ideas could never work in government, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think um, having nuclear deterrence is a good thing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it's a bit of an open question. Because it is an open think question. About, think about it. You know, if if every question. if every country didn't have nuclear weapons, then obviously that that'd be fine. But because some start countries do have nuclear weapons, a lot of you know like. Russia and China, North Korea, and anyway, a few other countries. Uh, you do need the, um, nuclear deterrence as well. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I am pro Trident. I do believe in nuclear, de- de- you know, weaponry. However, I do believe that there will become a, there will come a time in society in mankind when we won't need nuclear weapons. I Robert Kennedy was. I watched um, a thing on Netflix. It was Bobby Kennedy for president, and he was uh, he was anti Trident as well. But he also would sort of believe there would be a time when we can start disarmament. So I do believe that there will become a time in human history when every country, every nation in the world, will stop using nuclear weaponry, or will agree very much like um, you know, um, very much like uh, capital punishment. Uh, you know, it would be a thing of the past, and maybe we can. Like, I know Elon Musk put on a tweet saying, you know, if we would, if every nation stopped with nuclear weaponry and focused on exploring outer space, they can then focus on that. So I think that would be a good way to sort of mend the bridge of mankind if we got rid of nuclear weaponry and focus on going to space. I think that would be a perfect solution to the idea. 
Yeah, well, that's the best case scenario that every mm. country doesn't recognize borders and like mm. all the countries put their combined efforts with money, uh, manpower, and skill and uh, labor intelligence all together. If they all, ca- if all the best scientists in the world came together, I'm telling you now, we'd be we'd be so far ahead. Oh um, yeah, you know what really? I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. If every corner of society was was like that, we would be in a very different situation. However, at the moment and in the near future, I still believe we do need nuclear weaponry to protect ourselves from Russia, from China, from North Korea. You know, it's very it'd be very it, it'd be very irresponsible and stupid if we were to suddenly just get rid of our nuclear deterrence. Fortunately, yeah, you're right. That is right. It is right. So, uh, have you got anything else to say before we head to the 1997 election? Yes, I do have a few others. So after after um, after Michael fought, we then had a leader called Neil Kinnock. He was Welsh, actually, from South. I think he was from South Wales, but his wife was from Holyhead. So no that's yeah, yeah, mad really. But yeah, his wife was from Holyhead. Um, he, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. His his uh, his wife. He he was much more moderate to Michael Foot. He had quite a big big challenge ahead of him because um, he didn't really want the unions not not necessarily involved in the Labour Party, but he didn't want the unions to have a larger say. He wanted to reduce unions to have the say and give give members of the party a voice within. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, he didn't get in because I don't think he really thought about policies which could actually, um, you know, you know, get the party elected. He knew the party needed to be elected, um, but he didn't really think of policies that could um, that that could get the party, you know, elected. And the reason for that was was because was was because there was a lot of infighting between the far left and the moderates. The far left didn't like him because he wasn't radical like Michael Foote, basically. So they thought he was, you know, quite uh, moderate and he wouldn't go far enough with the changes. He wasn't, you know, he didn't really represent them. But, you know, you know, you can't really, like, you know, it, there's this fighting in the Labour Party. We, you know, we're united now, but the, there's always been a historic thing between the moderates and the radicals, you know, and, you know, that, oh, you know, we don't go far enough. And But it's, you know, it's it's quite, you know, I speaking from moderate, I just wish that the radicals, you know, of the Labour wing, you know, Labour wing would think to themselves, you know, okay, you know, it's not, it doesn't go, at least, you know, if they could just think to themselves, um, it, it's all right having these ideas, but it's no good if we can't get into power, do you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, because most of the far left, like back then, they were all inspired by communists and Marxists and all that, weren't they? Yeah, I'd say yeah. so, you know? Yeah, like the Marxist regime. But yeah, you know, you got to, you got to understand the checks and balances. You know, some of these policies are unelectable policies and ideas, you know. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, he didn't really get the message. Then afterwards came quite um, a new leader, came John Smith, who was another moderate. Um, unfortunately, he died of a heart attack. Um, so he never really managed to do a lot. But he was a big believer in the modernizing Labour Party and he inspired uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to sort of, you know, 
modernized labor party but you know we were watching the conference i was watching you know in preparation to research i was watching a few um things from an old i think it was from the 1980s about um the labor party and they were sort of saying um um you know these are all statistics actually and they were saying um do it was a news report and it says do you think britain's gone too far left now these were from members of the public. 57% thought no, yes, and 60% no. And then, and then Labour members, 50% yes, thought Labour gone to left wing, and 44% no. And then the second question, yeah, so these were these questions, basically, which sort of gauged the public. And unfortunately, there was a lot of infight between the far left, and it's how you look on the newspaper and how it looks at, at newspapers and stuff like that. And if that could get the sense that we can't, if it gets us too much infighting, um, that means that we as a party could never govern because it's like, well, how can we govern if we can't even unite our own party together? So I think yeah. that have been the biggest challenges of Labour leaders of we need to unite the party, so to speak, you know, Bill? Yeah, like it's... Like you said, it's just it's such a simple concept to think about that. Oh, obviously, yeah, we don't need to fight to make progress and get votes, but you know, like ego, that's what it is. It's ego. Uh, yeah, I think. Well, no, I, I I do disagree. There is ego, but also it, there is also the fact that people like their principles and people are very passionate about it, which is good. But what people have to understand is you've got to think about one thing about policies. Can these policies work in a government? Can the Labour Party govern from these policies? And with with Michael Foot, the public didn't think they could, and I think that's where Neil Kinnock had trouble, sort of, sort of, not necessarily calming the far left, but uniting the party. He just didn't couldn't unite the party well enough. I think that was his problem, and the fact just had a very strong Conservative government at the time, so it's very difficult to do that. Um, so after after John Smith, we then move on to Tony Blair. Now Tony Blair, I would say we've talked about different. Um, different um, volumes of the party, the far left, and and sort of the centre. Now Blair was on the right of the party. Um, he was he was very he was very interesting. Um, when he came into power, it was the first time that they were in power since eighteen years. So we had eighteen years of a Tory government. We had Margaret Thatcher. We had Margaret Thatcher in a free election victories. Then we had John Major, and then John Major was called in. He was Thatcher's chancellor, and then he, John Major's victory over over um, Neil Kinnock. So all in all, eighteen years of Conservative rule was quite you know hard to do. But they they their Tony Blair's government was quite unique because again he was on the right of the party, um, which means his policies were much more electable. It spoke to. Um, a lot of people who were traditional conservative voters to vote Labour, especially like in the south of England and middle England, um, they, that's where he kind of resonated quite well. He delivered he delivered a 179-seat Labour majority, and that was first landslide since Attlee, arguably, and the first the first Labour Labour victory in a generation. Um, now, you didn't grow up in Britain in that era, but I, I did. So a lot of what late Tony Blair did influenced a lot of people we you, you and i know because we we started our early years in a labor government um so one of their biggest policies actually ask me bill ask me what tony blair's biggest policy was dylan you better tell me what tony blair's biggest policy was or else or else what 
<laughs> I can't say that on the podcast. Oh, we shall no. Well, we, might, we might get censored. <laughs> nah, go on though. All right. Tony Blair's biggest policy was education, education, education. He wants to reform the education, reform the education, and to improve education for everyday people, modernize the British education system. Because so, so explain to me then what, what he wanted changing in the education system. Well, a lot of problems. He wanted to create a. He wanted to stop all problems. He created the safe policy. So he believed in. Um, he believed in that there were a lot of problems now with like a lot of people from working class families, working class backgrounds that when children hit 16, so year 11, early years of year 12, that they would leave education, get a job because there weren't many people going for university. He wanted more people to go to university, basically. Um, so what he did introduce was EMA. So it paid students from low income families so they could afford to go to school rather than get a job. Which which kind of stopped this need of uh, people wanting to go, needing to go to work, for work not necessarily great paid jobs, just put bread on the table, but then they could aspire to go off and get a degree and get a job and get and have quite a good life themselves. So it became like the party of aspirations. But the conservatives always said, "We're the party of aspirations. We're the party of aspirations. We're we're the ones. Once you made it, once you made money, you vote for us." And that was true. But Tony Blair managed to sort of have that have that indoctrinated in the Labour Party. Well, no, no, we're the party aspirations. We, you know, you can still be, you can still come from a humble beginning, make money and still vote for us because not only do we help people from low-income families reach the destination, but we also give back to the community and help people that are struggling. Um, so he introduced EMA, which was quite, you know, phenomenal. I mean, we, you and I both know a lot of people who were on EMA. So without that government, we wouldn't have EMA. He also used the, um, economically, the third waste system which was very popular with bill clinton um and it was you know that's how he got elected and other moderates and basically it wasn't like how the old left left would be it would be a sort of anti-capitalism anti-markets this was sort of more pro markets so they used the business and they it just their their sort of ruling would be work with businesses rather than cut them out like sort of older labor leaders would have thought like michael foot it, it was much more working with businesses working with uh, working with europe they were big global they were big they were big globalists uh, uh, new labor was a ma- massive thing it was a big global thing um, that his government was a big believer in the EU. Uh, we trade. So it was much more of a moderate ground. They said we trade with the um, our EU neighbours to help enrich our economy as well as their economy. And that's why it was sort of branded as New Labour because it was it was not like the old le- Labour of the left wing where it was massively in trade unions. It more modernised the party and helped tackle today, today's problems. Yeah. Yeah, do you... Uh, people say Tony Blair was is the most uh, conservative Labour leader, and uh, that kind of means like the reason why he got in because he was most like a, a conservative candidate. Do you agree with that statement, though? That's a very that's a very interesting uh, statement there, Bill. Um, I wouldn't say he was a conservative if that's what you're referring to. Because no, I'm not. I'm not saying he's a conservative, but he's more like a conservative uh, leader than any previous uh, Labour leader if you know what I mean he he you know he comes across as being a conservative that's what a lot of people thought of him and then that's a lot of people say that's the reason why he got in 
Do you agree or do you not agree? Are you talking about his policies or are you talking about Tony Blair as a person? As a person, I'm talking about like he, him as a person, not about his policies, like his demeanor and his mannerisms and the way he talks and stuff like that. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, well, he did go to privately education. I, I don't believe it personally. I think the, the, I think society needed change and they had it. He did have he did have private education and I think he did go to Oxford, but his father came from humble beginnings. His father was uh, adopted by a shipyard family, I think, in Scotland. So it was his father who had the rags riches story. And then Tony Tony um, Tony went to these to the education and you know became a barrister. Um, you know, and he, you know, he was very, very successful at it. Um, I, I don't think I got in as a conservative leader. I think he got in because we offered something new, something fresh, hence the term new labour. You know, we offered something fresh to, to Britain, something that was never seen. It was not from labour traditions. Conservatives didn't have it. It was, it was new. It was fresh. Everyone wanted it. You know, I think it was a modern party to deal with the modern, modern, modern uh, problems of the twenty first century, Bill. All right, though. There you go. That's fair enough. I just wanted to get your opinion on that. I did. I didn't. I don't have an opinion on it, but that's what a lot of people say. Why he got in? Well, he did other things, and you you might actually find this interesting. He was one of the key pl- p- people in '97 to um, help the Good Friday Agreement. He helped um, making the Good Friday Agreement. He was one of the key players that brought peace to Northern Ireland. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's, Obviously, you know, I'd be interested to you, Bill, but he wanted, you know, he believed that there should be no conflict, that there should be peace. He got Bill Clinton involved, because him and Bill Clinton, he describes Bill Clinton as his political soulmate, because they're both very similar. Bill Clinton, Tony Blair was new Labour, and Bill Clinton was a new Democrat, so they were very similar, but they both wanted peace in Northern Ireland, and if it wasn't for their work, they probably, peace in Northern Ireland would probably be pushed pushed um pushed back you know yeah, it wouldn't happen yeah, in 97 it might have happened in i don't know 2008 2010 which you know was wrong so they really really thought right doesn't really matter about the past we need to have to we have to talk about the future he had you know Tony Blair you know he said you know he would go to um he would go and sit down uh, he'd go to Dub Belfast and he'd sit down, I think Dublin as well. They sit down with IRA people, people from Sinn Fein, and he, people talk and they talk. He'd listen to their side of the story, which is quite, uh, at the time, it was a very opposite opposite attitude towards conservatives. It would be, we don't negotiate with, te- with terrorists, we have to fight them, fight them, fight them. But he would go there, listen, 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 talk. And then he had a much more friendlier, I'd say, when he took charge of his beliefs, he had much more of a friendly uh, relationship with Northern Ireland than, say, John Major or especially Margaret Thatcher did. Yeah, he sounds like he put in a lot more work in Northern Ireland than previous people, definitely. So, yeah, so, and then, so, do you have anything else to say about Tony Blair's leadership deal or should we move oh, on? Oh, well, I've got plenty to say about Tony Blair's leadership. Yeah, you carry on there, <laughs> carry on. So, what else he did was he introduced the minimum wage. His government actually introduced the uh, minimum wage, so which means now employers had a minimum wage to, have to pay their employees because people were paying stupid amounts of money, but the minimum wage would be to help, you know, workers have money so they could afford to buy stuff and buy products and whatnot, which was absolutely phenomenal. You know, people could... This is the big thing, as I would say. He modernised it. He put mass spending in the NHS, mass spending in education, 
Um, he had one, one one of the policies on education was quite popular. I do agree with his po- um, policies. He wasn't a big believer in um, free. He abolished free, twi- you know, free university. And I'll I, I tell you why he did that. And you, you know, there's some people will find this very unpopular, but this is why he did that. He said he the reason why he did that was because if you've got twelve between, he said. Free tuition for freeze and free university freeze would be would cost taxpayer would cost taxpayer in total not every taxpayer but taxpayers as a collective between twelve to fourteen billion pounds. Okay, so that's a lot of money. Um, he said, if I had twelve to fourteen billion pounds and use that money for free university, generally you're only helping middle class, upper class people get into degree. If I had twelve to fourteen billion class cash to spend on education, he said, and I 100 percent agree with this. I'd spend it on children and a life thing to make sure they have a decent education, especially from those working class and deprived backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm quite curious, Phil, because you know you're a student yourself. Do you do you agree with free tuition or are you against free tuition? But that was his thinking. Or what 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 would you believe in personally? My opinion, uh, I've never really thought about it, but I'd say, you know, in ways, universities are they are businesses mm. in a way. There is a business side to universities, you know, so they have to make money. So were they so were they getting subsidized by the government when when the university was free then? Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. So they were getting paid by the government the unis mm. were. Yeah. So yeah, so actually, you know, now that we're paying, I suppose the universities wouldn't won't be in as much of the control in the pockets of the government as well. So therefore they could do their own thing and they don't have to rely on the government's money. So in a way that's a good thing because the government could have been, you know, uh, saying, oh, you need to do this, you need to have this. But now universities uh, act more of like a self-sustaining business. They can uh, be do more what they want if you look at it like that. Yeah, of course. And I, I, don't get me wrong, I know the Welsh government, I know you and I are both students from um, the Welsh government, Mark Rayford, they give money towards you know, to help pay for university fees. I'm a big believer in that. I do think the government should give a little, but I don't think they should pay for all university fees, if that makes sense. I think it's too much on the taxpayer, personally. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I mean. Like a lot of the, like you said, now it's you could you could argue the word privatized, but it's privatized now, isn't it? Really, it's um. Well, unis were always money, privatized, but yeah, yeah, that money, yeah, you know, go into other things like helping the community, or it can go into like you say, helping young toddlers and young people in early education get a better start and like better, you know, that money can go into like a building a school and or improving a school, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I often thought personally, um, I think maybe we should offer free degrees, but depending on what they want to do. Like for example, now with the NHS, we've got a lack of nurses and doctors. So what I would say I say is, if anyone wants to be a nurse or a doctor, we'd I'll give you a free degree because it's beneficial. It goes back in if that makes sense. Or yeah. if you say want a degree in say um teaching you know we need teachers we'll give you a free degree especially for primary school male teachers there aren't many primary school male teachers so it would definitely be a big help really because it would would go back and help our society if we have more teachers and more uh, doctors and nurses yeah that's 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 a good idea actually that you know give a free degree to people that uh certain degrees certain degrees for the industries that need it in the country definitely yeah 
So is that it for Tony Blair now, Odell? Or uh, no, he also he what else did he do? He did quite a lot actually. Sorry, I've got quite a lot here. No, you're all right. Uh, what else did he do? What else did he do? I've done quite a lot. Uh, oh yeah, so he um, he stops he banned smoking in indoor pubs and restaurants. Was that Tony Blair? Was it? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. It's so weird because I can remember. Yeah, and so you can, can probably I. remember a time when that was still going on in our early childhood. And looking back on it now, it's mad that it went on for that long. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. Well, you know, I remember when I was I was about maybe four or something. Um, I remember being out for a meal. Um, and she come back and I said to you, you know, she said, oh yeah, I said, you know, you know, I, and she said, oh, I had a meal. I said, yeah, I saw it. Was it, was it good? You know what I mean? And we'll talk about it. And she goes, oh, I don't smoke. Cause my mum doesn't smoke. And if you've met my mother, she's very anti-smoking. Um, she, she had smoke on her clothes. I could smell it and it just stank of tobacco because of the smoke in the restaurant. That's it's mad, isn't it? That they used to let that go on. Like, especially with children in the pubs. I know. Well. Yeah. 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 Because it's not good. Secondhand smoke, uh, you know, shows that it causes cancer. And also the development for younger children, for the development of lungs, is definitely not good. Um, no, it's like, and then pregnant women. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Think about that, but absolutely pregnant women and stuff like that. So that was one of the things. I remember that on the television. I remember watching it when I was like, I think I'd be three or four. I remember there being a debate. And I remember there was a, there was a chap. He was in Wales. I think he was South Wales. And he 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 didn't smoke, and he goes, "I sit out here and drink my pint because I can't stand the smell of smoking." And it, he was very very upset about it. He said, "I can't go and join pint at my local because I have to go outside and drink." And then um, the news say, "Hopefully, hopefully, when this law gets passed, he can now enjoy it inside, and the smokers have to be outside." But yeah, you know, it's it's right because you've got these built up rooms. And you've got smoke passing around. It's going to get on clothes. People don't like the smell of cigarettes, and it's, you can get really smoky. You know, it's not it's not good for you to be breathing that in in a small, inconvenient space like a pub or a restaurant. No, it's it's not good at all. Like I can't. I actually am flabbergasted at how long it actually went on for. It took until the year just over two thousand, was it, or was it just before two thousand? Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, I think it was two thousand and four. So yeah, my brother was born. That's crazy. It is crazy. So, does um, does your mum hate vaping as well, Dale, or is it smoking? Oh no, she doesn't like any sort of things where you breathe in with your lungs. Uh, yeah, and vaping, vaping's banned inside as well, is it? Um, well, no, oh, vaping wasn't really a thing in two thousand and four. No, no, but now, I think it depends. No, I, I don't think it is. I think it depends on the venue. Um, because I used to vape. There is a law against it, is there, for vapes? There, that's a good question. I don't think there's a specific law. I think people lump it in with smoking. Because, for example, I know you're not allowed to vape or smoke in train stations, um, in Wales, and I think it's frowned upon in England. But I think it depends on the venue. Some place, some hospitality places will allow vaping and smoking. Yeah, like mainly pubs. mainly pubs, like not restaurants. Yeah, so. more more restaurants. Uh, more mainly pubs, pubs. Or nightclubs. Yeah, I know a few nightclubs that will. Yeah, because I see I see people vaping in pubs and nightclubs all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I was in um I was in you know Friday I went to a pub. And I think you're meant, I think you're not meant to vape in them, but you know, it's hard because the thing is with vape, it's a fruit smell, isn't it? It's not like smoking tobacco. 
no. if you can get the fruit ones. So you're not going to know the difference, really. Yeah, you I, could easily do it without getting caught. Well, like yeah, this. it's not like smoking where you have to physically get the cigarette, put it in your mouth, light it, smoke it. You know, it's not it's not like that at all. So it's a lot easier to get away with. So it depends really on the it depends really on the uh, establishment. I think I think it is that it depends on the establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, I you know there's a lot of things here. I want to put in this uh, act as well. Um, he um, passed that government in 2004 also passed the 2004 Civil Partnership Act, so which means it allowed gay people to not get married but to have some sort of have their union blessed by the eyes of the law. If that makes sense. Right. All right. Yeah. I didn't know that. I yeah. really didn't know. There you go. So then, as we move on, Dil, we get to Gordon Brown. Yes. Yeah, so for you, for those of you who don't know, um, Gordon Brown was actually Tony Blair's chancellor, and he was known as the Iron Chancellor. He was this tough chancellor who had his eye on the ball, the budgets. He didn't like the Tories. And um, yeah, so he Blair stepped down in 2007 and then Gordon Brown took his place as Chancellor. Um, again, it, it was quite hard for Gordon Brown really to do a lot. It was very similar to Jimmy Callahan. Yeah, because he only had three years, wasn't he? Yeah, he only had three years. Um, but he did do a lot of good. He um, he did do a lot of good. We were in the middle of a recession when he was in, when he was in power, when he got into power. And a lot of people blamed the Labour government, but in reality, it was started by the American government and the Republic, American government at the time were Repu- the Republicans of George Bush. It was that administration started it. And obviously, with markets, it had a global effect. So that's basically what happened. Um, what Gordon Brown did was he... Um, he went. He called the summit, basically, of every country. He said, "Look, we need to get this thing together, or we're going to get into a depression." And he he pledged that Britain would would uh, would um, would give one trillion dollars to help pull us out of recession, which was I think was remarkable. Um, because I, I tell you another thing: what um, the Blair government did back in '97, they privatized the Bank of England, so then they could set their own spending limits. Before it, it was up to the Conservative government, but then they privatized it, and made it a separate entity, so they could they could set their own spending limits, see what they could fit best on the economy, which where the economy is going. They wouldn't need government control. Um, some critics would argue that was a wrong decision, but then I think at the time it was quite good because then if they were a separate entity, they could make. Um, sensible choices about where to set the pound stuff like that he was a very you know but he didn't do a lot but he did that you know he did save um britain to go into a depression um i know it did go into a recession but a hard deep depression and he managed to unite the leaders and presidents and all sorts to ever he united it but he doesn't get a lot of credit for it gordon brown he doesn't really get a lot of credit for it but that was one of the good policies he did he also um he also did. Um, he also made a, pl- a pledge to get all British troops out of Iraq by April two thousand nine as well. Bill, did he? I didn't know. Yes, he did, did that, that. Yes. So what did he actually get them out then? Yeah, we, we, he. I was listening to a podcast actually the other day about it. Um, he was getting interviewed. Um, I forget what it was called. It was I think it was Matt Ford political show, and I was listening to it, and he said I was very firm with President Bush. I said no, we have to leave our troops now because I think one of the criticism, criticisms of Tony Blair was that he became very close with George Bush. Um, although speaking, watching an interview of Gordon Brown, he said that we were given for he they were given false intelligence from America to go and invade Iraq in the first place. 
All right, there you go. Didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, but he pulled them out of Iraq. Uh, one of his acts he did was a climate change act of 2008, which pledged Britain to go car, um, you know, carbon-free by 2030. Do you recommend track for that? Or? Yeah, well, we had this debate in the last one. I think, I, you know what? I think if we had the Labour government, say in an alternate universe or alternate timeline, Gordon Brown stayed as Prime Minister and we more or less had a good Labour government in, I'm not, I think it'd be quite, uh, it'd be quite, um, it would be quite uh, foolish to me that we were from 2008 now we would have just had a Labour government. I think it'd be quite unrealistic. But um, what we did have is um, what what we if we had a Labour government in 2008 and say we lost it in 2015 or whatever, we would have been much more on track. But I think because of the Conservatives, we've had you know much more. I think Cameron was much more of a modern it, but then fracking and stuff like that. Because um, what one of the things Tony Blair did do was he gave the go ahead for nuclear power stations, um, but the, when Theresa May, when David Cameron got in power, Theresa May, they didn't use them. All right, is, he had, is, that, he, where they, is that where that one on Anglesey got shut down? Well, yeah, well, no, that's not because he got shut down. He was talking about building new nuclears, but he gave him the go ahead to have more things because. As you know, we've had this discussion before this podcast that nuclear energy is a clean energy, and it would have helped with that. But unfortunately, I think I think it is now in irreal, um, not realistic anymore to reach by twenty thirty. I think I would like there to be. Don't get me wrong; I, I want it to be clear. I like there to be, but I think it'd be very difficult to, especially now since we've had Brexit, COVID, and the new war in Ukraine. It's been very difficult to do, and we've also had the ten years of the story, a story Tory government cutting everything. It's been very difficult. Yeah, well, I was going to say then, um, uh, Labour was defeated in twenty ten general election. Then, yeah, I. Oh, actually, I forgot one thing. Sorry to go back to the podcast. No, you're all right. Cool. Um, but Tony Blair did do something quite quite uh, uh, new as well. And it affects us as we both grew up in Wales, um, used to live there. And uh, he brought in the Senate and the Scottish Parliament and the Northern Ireland. Oh, wait, Parliament. Oh, wait don't, they didn't exist before Blair, no, though. He brought them in in 97. All right, I didn't know that. And he brought it in, and people say this, that you know people say about the Labour government. You know, he 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 devolved power to those nations because he felt like, as much as I do, that Welsh people need to have a say in how Wales is run. As Scottish people need to have a say how Scottish things run. I think the Northern Irish Parliament was still a thing because of the uh, Unionists and the Republicans, but he brought in the Welsh Parliament in Cardiff, the Senate. And um, but you know what? Yeah, since the Senate's been commissioned in seven, it's always been Labour government in charge. It was never never been given to the Tories. Yeah, yeah. So it shows so how would they have been? How would the Tories get a hold of that if they wanted to, or could they not? Um. Well, they were very good. To be honest, uh, they were very close. Um, they were very close in twenty nineteen. We didn't have a general election until. After that, but they were very close to them because of you know Jerry Corbyn and Brexit, and we'll get into that later on. Um, but uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, you know they didn't get in. They they, they luckily we, we managed to keep in. I think what happened with COVID, Drakeford, Mark Drakeford, who was the first minister of Wales, he stepped up and was like, no, this is what we're doing. And you know he made a very you know he made decisions which was best 
the best help the Welsh people and um, they were a lot of some of them were very unpopular like the pubs shutting them at 10 o'clock but I, you know it kind of did help because we did have the lowest Covid uh, um, death record overall you know and how we how we managed the uh, Covid vaccines it was a lot better how Boris Johnson did you know I'm at Hancock yeah 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 definitely you know it's a lot of people didn't like that but like you say we did the lowest rates and stuff like that yeah so but I, I i'm wondering if it's all right with you bill i've just had the idea now maybe in another episode we could talk about the uh, snf and go into more detail because again that's a whole another subject to itself <laughs> yeah that'd be a good episode yeah yeah, yeah we'll talk about the yeah. SNF. i reckon i reckon that'd be very interesting to talk about they've done talk a lot about of the wales. talk about the senate and how it um deals with north wales and south wales and, and the mid wales like can't forget the mid wales bill <laughs> um, yeah, so then after after Gordon Brown, he was the last Labour Prime Minister. And then, unfortunately, we had David Cameron. And then the opposition we had there was... Um, Ed, Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband, yes. Ed Miliband. I'm just getting my notes on him, sorry. Um, and um, he had some good pleasures. He wanted to raise minimum wage for more than £8 by 2019. Um, he wanted to... He wants to abolish non-DOM tax status. Not say that again. He wants to abolish non-DOM tax status. Right. So what does that mean? So basically, you probably know what non-DOM is for Rishi Sunak's wife. It's like how if you're say if you're very wealthy, and if I think if your wife is either um you know, from a different country or she has business in another country, you can have non-DOM tax status. So even though, if, if their savings are abroad, I think, and the businesses are abroad, you won't get taxed on it, basically, because you, you you've got that tax status. You won't get taxed. Right, basically. okay. A lot of millionaires and billionaires take advantage of this. Um, but he, Ed Miliband, wanted to abolish that and said, no, 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 they have to pay tax status. Um, he was big into the environment as well, Ed Miliband. Uh, you know, he wanted to really fight climate change. Um, unfortunately, I think he didn't really, you know, cut the mustard, unfortunately. He just wasn't ready. Um, you know, he, he was good, but he just wasn't ready. Um, and he even... How more, how more ready could he have been, though, though? Like, you know what I mean? Well, he was quite a young person. And I, when he became leader of the Labour Party... I just don't think he had the experience behind him to be a, a prime minister yet. Because right. you got to understand this now. Tony Blair, Tony Blair became an MP in 1983 or 1984. He didn't run run as leader of party till 1997 or 19. Yeah. Sorry, he didn't become prime minister till 1997. So he had over a decade of experiences, and you know he was. He, he was quite, you know, even though he was considered quite a young MP, he still had, or a young Prime Minister, he still had experience. And Miliband uh, didn't really have that experience. And he himself, he just just didn't, didn't have the experience. Uh, I think he would have made quite a good, now I reckon he would have made quite a good Prime Minister. But back then, I just don't think he had the confidence to um, sort of project himself and argue effectively against Cameron. So, unfortunately, that's where... Uh, that's where it, it happened, really. That's kind of what happened. Um, the newspapers referred to him as Red Ed because I think his father was a socialist um, right. and made him out as to be a communist, even though Ed Miliband went to a private school. and was Yeah, he had a brother as well who was in politics, didn't he? Pardon? 
He had a brother as well. That was in yeah, the- Dave Miliband. Well, Dave Miliband or David Miliband was was originally going to be running for leader party. Then they Ed Miliband wanted to be in competition, so they had a little bit of a fight. Really, I think. Um, and this is just me as you know as an analysis here I think David Miliband would have been a better Prime Minister or no sorry better Prime Minister or a better leader of opposition than Ed Miliband would have been um, he had a bit more experience to him but yeah it's just just a shame really but you know the the, the paper didn't help um, the papers didn't help you know they called him Red Ed because his father was a socialist and they made him out to be like a communist even though he was uh in the Navy in World War Two, but uh, yeah, it was just it was just, it was just a shame, really. And also the way he ate ba- a bacon sandwich. Do you remember that, Bill? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Do you remember? Do you remember that? And they took a photo of him eating a bacon sandwich, and it looked stupid because he was like, eh. "But you know." It, oh, you know, you say yeah. It was just the way you eat a bacon sandwich, and a crafty photographer took the photograph. And it just looked funny, and that became a thing. So it became like a little bit of a laughing stock. And also, um, there was a photo. Do you know Wallace and Gromit? Yeah. They they kind of characterized him to look like Wallace with hair. So no one really took him seriously, to be honest with you, which is a shame. I, it's I, amazing how the media and the papers yeah. can literally ruin your life with one statement, isn't it? Well, they didn't ruin his life, really, but they just didn't take him seriously as a prime minister. Because, you know... Quite interesting fact here. So when Tony Blair, um, the Sun, which is a right-wing newspaper, actually endorsed Tony Blair. Well, not endorsed him, but backed him. He put on, we back Blair, get Blair in, time for change. You know, so, you know, it, when you're running as leader of opposition, wanting to be prime minister, you need to have a good relationship with the media and you can't have any gaffes, if that makes sense. Right, okay. You can't have any gaff because then people won't take you seriously. I was Boris Johnson. I think it was a bit difficult. I think the gaff sort of played to his favour, but generally for a Labour leader, you have to have, you don't not say come across as serious or deadpan, but you have to come across as quite a professional, if that makes sense, and not a bit of yeah, a... Yeah, you do. Not a well, bit of a dude. Why, yeah, you know? exactly. Like, that's why I think Blair was so liked, because he came across as a professional. Yeah, much more professional. Knew what he was talking about. He understood politics. That's how you need to come across, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, I just yeah, don't yeah. think the media did Miliband justice, and unfortunately, because of that, you know, we didn't get in the election. You know, Cam yeah. beat him, Trees May beat him, and then he stepped down, and then... And the Conservatives would lose their majority in 2017, but Labour would remain in opposition against the second May ministry with a confidence and supply agreement. For the listeners, can you just explain what a confidence and supply agreement is? I don't know what that is, Bill. <laughs> Do you not? No. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll tell the listeners what the, conf- the confidence and the supply So... One second. Uh, you have to look at it now. I, I don't know. Do you want me to Google it? No, no, I got it here. I got a, I had it in my notes. One sec. <laughs> Sorry, Dill. I put you on the spot there. You did a bit, didn't you, Bill? <laughs> I wasn't even talking about 2017. I was talking about 2015. Anyway. Confidence in supply agreement is... It's about the DUP, basically. Oh, yeah, no, I yeah. know what that is. Yeah. I, I just didn't know what it was called. Okay. So, 
in 2017, Theresa May's government won, but they didn't win win enough to get a party, so they had to go into coalition. Just how Cameron's conservatives had to go in coalition. Um, Cameron's coalition, Cameron had to go co- coalition with the Lib Dems, who was leader up at the time, Nick Clegg. So Theresa May had to make a coalition, and they made it with the DUP of Northern Ireland. Um, yeah. What's the leader's name now? Uh, Eileen Foster. She had to make a, um, a deal with Eileen Foster to, to become um, to to have a coalition. And I think a big part of it was if um, if about Brexit because obviously Brexit had a problem with um, you know Northern Ireland with the border that Northern Ireland still wanted the same rights as Britain. They didn't want to have any special rights. Like, they had to remain in the common market. They wanted every right as a British citizen to leave. Yeah, exactly, though. That yeah, sorry. Oh, I didn't know what it was. I, all right. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah, me using big words. Like I'm just using big words that I don't even understand myself, thinking you'd know them because you know a lot about Labour. But well, it's not a Labour thing, but yeah, no. Well, no, I suppose it is, really. But um, we've seen jump ahead here, Bill, because after Ed Miliband came after Ed Miliband left, Jeremy Corbyn took power. Now, there are great similarities between Jeremy Corbyn and Michael Foot. They were both to the left of the party. And um, he fortunately delivered the biggest, um, you know, Labour defeat in 2019, where we lost the Red Wall um, since, I think it was, I think it was 1934. Lost the biggest Labour defeat. We lost the Red Wall. Now, the Red Wall, for listeners who don't know, we're a set of air, was a set of area from the northwest of England, sort of going towards the northeast. who have always voted Labour. Ever since the Labour's Red Wall, well, he absolutely decimated it because um, Jeremy Corbyn was leader, and a lot of people didn't like his policies. And I, I think his policies were very much quite, you know, left the party. Um, he wasn't really a big fan of. Um, he wasn't really a big fan of. He wanted uh, nuclear disarmament. A lot of people were against that. He wanted to leave NATO, obviously, which was very dangerous to wanting, you know, Britain to leave NATO. Um, He was a Republican, uh, very similar to Michael Foote, um, except he... Except he... um, he didn't. He um, he wanted a Republican. I think he had this idea that he wanted to abolish a monarchy and put a president. But a lot of people, including Red Wall voters, like the Queen, so it would be considered quite dangerous. Um, he didn't have a strong. He didn't really have a strong position on Brexit. And in the early years, Jeremy Corbyn was a Brexiteer when he first came to Parliament. I think he kind of came to Parliament in the early 80s or late 70s, and he was a big, big Brexiteer, which is fair enough to him. But then um, when he kind of came leader of his opposition, he found that a lot of his supporters uh, were Remainers. So he didn't want to upset the boat and be like, oh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I'm actually a Brexiteer. So he, I suppose he kind of became a Remainer, but he didn't really like the idea of Remain. So he didn't really campaign hard because with the ex-argument of Brexit, you, it was something quite extraordinary. You had people, Labour people and Conservatives working together for Brexit. And for the Remain, you had Labour people and Brexit. You know, you had Labour, Lib Dems and Conservatives working together. And he didn't really want to work with David Cameron because he was, you know, because of his principles. So um, unfortunately, because of that, you know, um, he didn't have a strong position on Brexit. I think um, one of his, if I remember rightly, one of his uh, policies were, one of his policies was would have a referendum, but my argument was this. And bear in mind, I am a Remainer. Um, I Remainer. I said this because I remember this because I said this from saying this to a girl who was a Labour voter, uh, but she was a Brexiteer, 
I said, I said, I am a Remainer, but I will support the outcome of this election. If it is a Brexit election, I will go for Brexit because it is an it is an anti democratic if we um, vote for uh, if we if we want to vote again. I don't believe that's how a democracy should be run. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Still, that really does make a lot. Of Even sense. though I would be firmly against the idea yeah. of it. It's what the people voted. We now must deliver what the people say. If not, we're not true to democracy. You know, I'm a believe big believer in democracy. You're and a big believer. I don't get what I think that could be a future uh, podcast episode as well, the, the the origins of democracy. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I've been reading a lot of Cicero. And yeah, that's exactly, that's democracy. what I mean. So, yeah, definitely, 100%. But I am a big believer in democracy. And I kind of view, this is my view on Brexit. I kind of, because people say, oh, we got our independence back from the EU. I kind of view it, viewed it as if Wales vote to be independent, would we, we, would we really want to vote again? So I, I was, a, I wasn't really a big believer. I think once you vote Brexit, you have to leave. And I think that was one of Cameron's weaknesses as prime minister. He didn't really expect people to want to vote Brexit. He said, "I'll just vote Brexit to sort of stop the, the Brexiteers who are on the fringe of the Conservative Party on the right." Um, but obviously that blew his face. But I think we should definitely do an episode on Brexit in the future because it'd be very interesting. But. Obviously, getting back to Corbyn, um, he didn't show strong relations with Cameron. And I think if he did, you know, if Remain, or if he did at least pick the side of Remain or Brexit, and then and then after Brexit said, oh, Labour becomes a party of Brexit, uh, like the Conservatives, we would have left the, you know, it would have not been that defeat. Um, but yeah, some of the policies were quite unrealistic. Um, traditionally, Labour, their chancellors have always been moderates. Uh, Gordon Brown was a moderate or a centrist or even to the right of the party. But um, Jerry Corbyn's chancellor, John McDonald, was very left wing. So he wasn't really an ideal candidate. Um, he just wanted to, they just wanted to put taxes up on everything, which you can't do. Because if you if you put tax up too high on everything, you know, there'll be no profits. There's no incentive to spend anything on any products. So that makes sense. If the government is taking too much money, you know, it's all about yeah, balance, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's where... The moderates of Labour and the far left of Labour disagree, or the left wing of party. Because the left wing of party are like, yeah, put tax up, it's all right. But the moderates be like, well, no, if he, if the government is taking too much, there's no incentive for investment or businesses. So it's all about finding a balance, really. That is, Dil, because, you know, like I said, I, I remember, here's a story now, I remember I was on a train one day to Liverpool, mm. and uh, I think it was me and you, Dil, I can't think it was anyway, and I, I, I sat next to this man, this old man, just got chatting to him, and I go to me, oh, so I said to him, oh, so what do you work in, like, and he was like, oh, I work in the tobacco industry, and I'm like, all right, what's it like to work there? And he goes, oh, it's all right. Like, I've worked there since whatever age, since a young age. So I was quite interested in it because, um, so I said to him, like, so how much, per, what's the percent of the government take of tobacco and uh, cigarettes and all? And he told me something that blew my mind. He said to me, the out of a pack of cigarettes, the government takes over 80% of the price uh, of that. you got to understand why with cigarettes, Phil, because they cause lung cancer. <laughs> I understand. No, I understand with cigarettes and stuff like that. 80% though, it blew my mind. It literally blew my mind. So that, and that got me thinking, do you think it's okay um, for the government to take a high percent on something like tobacco, which does kill people, but 
do you believe that they should take a lower percentage on other stuff which doesn't kill people? Well, like what, Bill? Like, for example, like like just normal food and like normal, like... I don't know something like something that isn't like tobacco, like you know. Well, like alcohol you got you gotta understand why the government are doing that. They're doing that because they don't want society to smoke. That's yeah, I know because obviously the more people that. smoke, obviously That's the more why people they don't want the to make profit on those cigarettes. It's because yeah, no go. Yeah, I was just gonna say like yeah, I understand that because obviously the more people I smoke, uh, the more pressure it puts on the NHS and the more money the yeah, government has. Exactly, and the more lung conditions we have. So obviously, if it's something like cigarettes, where eventually you can, I reckon we'll get to a point where we ban cigarettes altogether to make them illegal. I, I'd be a big favor in that. Um, maybe switch to vaping as a healthier alternative because it'd be shown to be a healthy alternative. Yeah. Um, not it's not perfect, but it's a healthier alternative. Um, but um, yeah, no, I'm in cigarettes. I'm a big believer in stuff like that. But stuff like because I think I think veg and stuff. I don't think the government do pay any tax on because it's essential. Anything sort of essential, the government won't tax. But stuff like um, say if you go for a restaurant and you go to a fancy dinner, then yeah, obviously the government should tax that, but obviously not as a high amount of tobacco. The you know the business should still make profit from that if that makes sense. But obviously we do need some tax to fund the health service, education, and the public spending. Yeah, and that, when he told me that, that that made me think to myself, well, how many people in the UK must be buying tobacco for tobacco companies only to be taking twenty percent of profits, and for them still to be in business? And that that kind of shocked me when absolutely, I told him that. Absolutely, absolutely. For them to only take 20% and they're still making crazy money, you know what I mean? It just goes to show how many people in the UK are addicted to tobacco. Well, it's yeah, it's it's addictive. You know, if you're craving nicotine, nicotine, yeah. you don't think to yourself, oh, I better not buy this and kill me thinking, I need my, 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 my smoke in the morning. You know, I, I eat smoke casually. Um, and I and I would be like, you know, um, I was never really an addict. I think a pack of cigarettes could last me about three or four weeks. So definitely not an addict. But um, I know, you know, I quite know a few people who smoke, and they say when they have had their cigarettes, their their mind changes completely into like a wild animal, you know, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's yeah, you know, addiction does that to you. Also, it does. you know, it does. Yeah, uh, that's that goes with any addiction, I suppose. So. Um, so we're up to Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn now, and you said you're being saying about Jeremy Corbyn. <clears throat> Excuse me. So a lot of people, there's this term going around, and you know about this term, a Corbyny. Mm. What do you think of that term, and what does it mean for the listeners? So that just means you're a believer in Jeremy Corbyn and his policies, and it kind of describes what, what position you are in the party. So Corbynites are more on the left of the party. Blairites are more the right of the party. Brownites are more central party, and Starmites, who were with Keir Starmer, are more central party. Um, it just it, it describes the people, the fans of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, other parties, so that's what it means basically. That's what that's what the ter- yeah. that's what the term means. Yeah. So have you got anything else to say about Jeremy Corbyn? Yeah, quite a few actually. He also wanted to. Uh, he also wanted to abolish university fees in the first few months of getting elected. Elected, I think this was twenty seventeen, if not not correct, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I I again didn't think it would work because you know you want to abolish university fees, and we discussed why I don't believe we should. 
Um, but doing it in a short time would completely mess up the economy if you suddenly sell, cut off and make the government spend it more and increase taxes on working people. So I just thought it to be quite um, unrealistic, if that makes sense. Now, obviously, Corbyn got a lot of scrutiny towards, um, you know, Palestine, Palestine and Israel. The, uh, the the media made him made him out to be an anti-Semite. Now I'll, I'll be honest yeah, with well, you. I was going to be my next question. Actually. Yeah, you know, so on, you I'm might as well, so you might as well talk about it now instead of me asking it anyway. Well, no, you, you asked the question. You asked. The question. No, I was just going to say people have thought he was um, anti-Semitic. Uh, I was just going to ask your view on that. I think Jeremy Corbyn personally isn't anti-Semitic. He isn't. I'll tell you one hundred percent. He isn't. However, uh, what he is is pro-Palestinian. And sometimes I think he got so encouraged of being pro-Palestinian, it came across anti-Semitic. You know, it encouraged anti-Semitic behaviour, I think, even though he himself doesn't believe in that. Um, he def- doesn't definitely doesn't believe in that. But, and he wasn't really strong enough to sort of say, no, we don't stand. He never really made a public thing saying, I'm against that. He kind of let it happen. And I think you know, it caused a lot of problem with people who were Jewish who were in their party. A lot of people actually left because of that. A lot of other MPs actually left because of that and caused mass divisions. So, I, you know, I think that it also came across as he was anti-Semitic as well. And then, you know, the fact that he was anti-establishment and a few other things actually... Um, he wanted, I don't know if this happened, but he wanted Northern Ireland to, to uh, give them the choice to rejoin Ireland, Ireland of Ireland, um, which obviously wasn't didn't go down well with the British people. Um, I think what you got to understand with Jeremy Corbyn is, um, look, I'll say this right now, Jeremy Corbyn is a very good MP. MP for Islington North is a constituency in London. He's a very good, I've always said this, and this is my absolute beliefs, he has good intentions uh, and in terms of being MP of the North, but I knew he never had any experience. We would never make a rubbish prime minister because he has he had no ministerial experience. Um, and I think he kind of felt like everyone should have his worldview uh, and, you know, people don't, if that makes sense. And it didn't work well if others didn't have his view. And I think that was, you know, well, the problem. And he wasn't really a strong leader I don't think, you know, he didn't handle Brexit well. I did't handle anti-Semitism well. He should have he should have made him more of a stand and said, look, yes, I'm pro-Palestinian. That doesn't mean I'm I'm sorry. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm an anti-Semite. That means I'm and he should have kicked them out of the party, but he didn't do that really. So I think that's where his weaknesses lied, to be honest with you. And also well him being on the left wing and some of his policies economically wouldn't work. His relations of NATO and Trident and America, I don't think would work very well, to be honest with you, Bill. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Bill. And like you said, he's a good he's a good MP. But um Prime Minister. Oh, prime Minister we argued. <laughs> You know, um, but yeah, I remember, do you remember that time he, w- he was traveling around? Uh, I think it was for the, was it 2019? Yeah, 2019 no. election. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. And he came, yeah, to, I think it was. he came to North Wales, didn't he? And um, there was quite a turnout for him that went and, goes, went and seen him. Yeah, and in, he went to Rose on Sea by the hill, didn't he? Um, <laughs> but those listeners who probably understand what they mean, um, in, there's an area in North Wales called Rose and Sea. It's like a beach town, and there's like a hill. And then he was on the coastal path, coastal pathway, as you go down. So he was best way to describe it. There's like a hill. 
and there's a road and then there's where, where the coast is. So he was there by the coast, really. Yeah. So that's how I described yeah. it. He didn't go into Anglesey, though, did he? Or did he? I'm not too sure, to be honest. I, don't, I wouldn't say he did, though, because that would have been mainly ployed, wouldn't it? Well, he might have done anyway, but I, I don't think so. I know he did go to the Cornwall Centre, did a bit of speech there, but I, I didn't go. And I, I wasn't a member of the party back then. I should, I should have gone, but... I don't know. I I know I know a few people that we know that went actually. Yeah, yeah, I um, do as well. I won't, I won't mention their names, no, obviously. But I know a few. I yeah, do, yeah. I know a few people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I should have gone really, but I just I kind you of felt weren't into, you weren't into politics as much then, though. Well, I was always into politics, but I was disillusioned with the Labour Party a little bit with Corbyn, if that makes sense. I wasn't really a big fan of mine. I wasn't really a big fan of his as leader. So I was a bit very, my mindset was a different place. So I didn't really focus on, I was always had an interest. I always watched it, but I was never really participating as it, as it were, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You were like, you're watching from afar. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm glad I'm in it now. Obviously I think we're yeah, in of course, a very like, different so, situation. And then the next leader was Keir Starmer. Then, wasn't Starmer he was our current leader. After the 2019 election, uh, Jeremy Corbyn stepped down, didn't he? Yeah, after the defeat with Boris Johnson, rightly so, he stepped down. I think it was fair he had to step down uh, because he was, um, well, he was just you know, unelectable. And I'm not saying this to be harsh. No, you're right. I, I heard that term thing. thrown around loads of times, unelectable. That's what I heard. They can speak for themselves, don't they? If he was electable, if he was electable, he would have won. Or if he didn't win, he would have um he would have not let the Tories have mass majority since Thatcher in the mid eighties. Um which he turned like that idiot Boris Johnson in really. So uh, yeah, I mean but yeah I I when Keith Starmer first came in uh, as leader of the opposition, I mean, I did kind of feel a bit bad for him because it was the middle of the pandemic. We just sort of entered a pandemic. It was 2020 when he actually became leader. And um, it didn't really help we were in the middle of a pandemic. So he, we never really got to know him as personality because for you listeners out there, a big thing for, <coughs> excuse me, a big thing for, the leader of the part, a leader of opposition or any politician, especially being prime minister, is a personality. So people didn't really know his personality that well. And he actually had to say, because I remember watching his opening uh, first PMQ speech, he said, I'm going to treat this like a wartime pact, very much how Attlee and Churchill did, because it was wartime and I will support the government and, you know, in the decisions in terms of lockdown, stuff like that. Some of them he said at the start or whatever, because we need to be united to work together to help guide the British people out of the pandemic. Um, obviously, now, now we've had two lead conservative prime ministers since he's been leader and um he's now in charge now i went to go speak to, i went to go listen to him in conference and i found him very inspirational um people kind of referred to the left of the party referred to keith starmer as a blairite because he's more right i wouldn't say he's a blairite i'd say he's actually a centralist he's smack bang in the middle he's where i want to be he wants to nationalize great british energy um, which is good. He also wants to deliver a strong economy. He wants to actually look after businesses, but also SMEs, which are small to medium enterprises, uh, which is very good. He wants to, uh, you know, he wants to do ideas like that. So he's much more of a moderate. Uh, and I do think he's very much about clean energy. He's also quite a big believer in pro-nuclear energy, which is quite interesting, really. So I think now we can actually win with a leader like Keir Starmer. Um, but, what, you know, what, what's your thoughts on him, Bill? 
Um, my thoughts on Kiyostamer is uh, he's definitely more electable, I'd mm. say, than Corbin. Um, I think he's got a bit more about him. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm talking about face value. Uh, he, he looks like... He, he looks more electable or something. He's, he has a bit about him, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like, um, Corbin, he's... He was more like, oh, I, I'm, I'm just plain old, plain old Corbin. Like, you know, he didn't do anything. He didn't really. I, I, I can't even think of him smiling or anything. Uh, like, he was just very dull. I think. Where I've seen videos of Keir Stammer in the chamber in the House of Commons, like yeah. being very very outspoken and very vibrant in his words and like going back and forth with the conservatives like quite vibrantly which i yeah. think a lot of people is going to take to his personality if you know what i mean well it's quite interesting really because corbyn actually is a human rights lawyer and um, did a lot of work for northern ireland and then he became a uh, head prosecutor for the queen's council or the qqc so he has experience in this um and I think if you look at the backgrounds, I, I kind of compare, because you could tell a lot by someone by the background, Bill. Um, I initially yeah. thought Corbyn was like from the middle working class, but his his mum and dad, this is not, I'm not slating Corbyn in any way whatsoever on this podcast. I'm just saying it from a factual perspective. Um, he, he came from quite sort of like an upper middle class family. Um, his mum and dad were both into their politics. I think they met at a, a socialist rally somewhere, um, somewhere for one of the South American countries, um, and he had quite a very. It wasn't a regular background, but I thought it was initially when I first heard about him becoming leader. I thought he was what not, but he was quite had a political upbringing. He went to a private school or grammar school in Shropshire, so he kind of was a quite removed, really. But Keir Starmer, his mum was a nurse and his dad was a toolmaker. You know, he went to yeah, uh, yeah. he went to a state school like us. I think he later became a private school, and then he went to the University of Leeds. So he's right, very right. much a normal person, really. He comes from a background, sort of a working class background, and he has sort of he knows what it's like to be just a normal person getting on a bus. You know, he obviously has big political ideas. But he understands it, and that's kind of what I like about Corbyn. He's a centralist like me, but he knows what it's like to, to, to come from a normal background, if that makes sense. Politics, obviously, he has skin in the game, if that makes sense. Or he's one of these politicians I like to call he has skin in the game. Jess Phillips is the same as an MP. I think she's an MP for Birmingham. Um, she has skin in the game. Um, she knows that her policies will improve the people in her community and what they grew up with, and that's why I like them so much. They're much more moderate. Um, yeah. He isn't a Republican. He's, he is a monarchist, but I think he believes in the monarchy. He has great respect for the Queen, or well, the Queen's past, but he'll have great respect for Charles III. He, wants, he's very, he has a similar sort of vision with Tony Blair, where he wants to become the part of aspiration, and I think, you know, he's given that way. He understood the differences now. Um, I'm not saying Corbyn was anti-business or John McDonald's Chancellor was anti-business, um, but I just think they didn't understand business. And because what they sort of associate business, they associate with like billionaires, for example, who wouldn't pay tax, it kind of gave them a project. A- Prejudice view against all business owners are evil. Obviously, that's not the case. My father's business owner, your stepfather's business owner, they're not evil, are they? Do you know what I mean, Bill? <laughs> you know, no, no. they're not they're not evil. 
but so but I don't think they really sat down and thought we need to sort of understand and about what importance businesses bring to the economy. Uh, while I think Keir Starmer does, they have I love the chance Chancellor Rachel Reeves. Um, she, again, she's a moderate, and um, she's actually going to sort of help get new green jobs in and help support businesses with the economy, middle, middle, you know, SME, small to medium sized enterprises. So I think it's a much more realistic, data, uh, pragmatic Labour Party, which can source through a majority in 2024. Well, no, apparently it might be sooner in about two months, uh, you know. And I think, you know, we can see great change from this uh, cabinet, this shadow cabinet. Yeah, exactly. And then another thing that happened when Keir Starmer came into power was Brexit, wasn't it, though? No, Brexit already uh, happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know, like, yeah. We did leave the EU. Yeah, we officially left the EU in twenty twenty or late twenty twenty or something like that. But um, but yeah. So, what's your what's your opinion on Brexit, though? What in general or in general? Well, we could have a whole podcast about that, Bill. I did say I'm a Remainer, but we'll yeah, you, you so you're just a Remainer. So, uh, was Keir Starmer a Remainer? Yes. Well, <laughs> Keir Starmer was a Remainer, but he was made under Corbyn's cabinet because he went into Corbyn's cabinet as a shadow Brexit secretary. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the part of the view of Europe now is we're not going to have another referendum because, again, in my view, it'd be pointless, but we need to have a relationship with Europe because I think this is where this Tory government's failed. They just think, yeah, Brexit's done. We don't need a relationship with Europe. Obviously, that's not the case. We trade with Europe. We have quite a strong relationship with Europe. We still need to trade with Europe. So we do need to have some sort of trade agreement or deal to sort of get goods and try and help balance our economy out, especially now while we're in the middle of a war with Ukraine. And I think if Keir Starmer could get in, we could have much more positive relationships with Brexit rather than how this conservative government has had much more of a toxic relationship with the EU. Yeah, definitely. Though. So what else uh, about Keir Starmer would you like to say, though? Uh, he's an Arsenal fan, so is he? Yeah. <laughs> That's mad. Oh, wait, so wait, is he from London? No. Where yeah, he's, from, he's from. He's no, he's from. I think. Yeah, I think he's from. Uh, his seat is Pancreas at Hol- Holborn in London, but right, okay, same Pancreas. But I think he's from. Um, I think he's from just outside. I think he's from. I think he's from. Yeah, I think he is from London. I I, I don't think he's from there, from where he seat represents. But I do think he's from London. But um, yeah, I I there's not really much more to say about him. I have nothing but the yeah. highest regard to people here. Don't get me wrong, I don't agree with everything he's done. But overall, I think he is probably one of the best leaders we've had in a generation. I think we're going to see great change when he becomes prime minister. Yeah. So there you go. So that's that's my next question. Actually, do you see Labour getting in in twenty in the next general election? Though. Oh yeah, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we've had during these. These few years, we've had Boris Johnson, who isn't really a conservative. He's just a career politician. Doesn't really have any sort of ideas. The only reason why he got in from Brexit was because he had Dominic Cummings, and that he was the man behind Brexit. You see, he was the one. He he was the one who made sure Johnson had his team in, and he was the one who you know had a look at his speeches, made sure they were okay. Uh, when he left, Boris basically fell to jelly, which I knew was going to happen. Um, so we've had some very rich aristocrat think he can just do what he wants, and he can't. And then we have Liz Truss, who, who's basically 
in the first few months. No, well, she was elected in September, was it? Yeah, September. I don't think it's even been a full month. Well, it's just been a full month, not by a lot, though. And um, she's devalued the pound. Uh, she has um, completely made it made us a laughing, laughing stock in Britain. Yeah, I, I don't see how the Conservative can, 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 can come back from it. She's damaged relations with Tory voters. Um, she, uh, do you know the Green Belt is? Green Belt? Uh, I've heard of it. I'm not sure what it well, is. Well, the though. Green Belt is some areas in in Britain which are big with Tory. It's keep them, make sure they have no construction so people can have countryside walk and stuff like that. They're very oh, big yeah, yeah. national. What's that place called? National site? What's that place where you go? National Trust. Big Trust National Trust. Go walking. Well, she's gone and gone. No, we want to frack that land. So, you know, it hasn't really yeah. got a leg to stand on from the Tory government. And yeah. uh, we now, we now, you know, she's upset them. She's basically cut herself off from most of the Tory people because there is no one else now. You know, because anyone who she, who they have this dream with, she just kicks them out. So she's more or less alienated herself. Um, she's sat the Chancellor. We now have, we've discussed this, but we now have a Chancellor who was the most unpopular Chancellor in a generation, um, who's probably very different from uh, Liz Truss. And I think he's going to try, I think Jeremy Hunt is going to try and make a play for PM. He knows that her time's up. So she's going to try and make a play for it. She's done nothing to help this cost of living crisis and trickle down economics. And yeah, I, I do generally think it's time for a change, time for Labour to have a go and see what we can deliver. We, when Labour was in power in 97 to 2010, it was probably one of the best times in Britain. People had money, society was different, we were much more happier, we were much more forgiving, we much more we much more helped out, looked after out one of each other, but now we become more selfish and money's been short and it's not really been generally it's not been a positive ride at all I think it's been only negative we've been much more cynical as a society we've been much more inward looking I think Keir Starmer's got off on a much more outward looking government look at possibilities what we can achieve with the right people in power Right, there. That's that's good words, wise words there from you, Dil. So before we start to wrap things up, Dil, do you have anything, any final words you'd like to say to the listeners about the Labour Party or anything or the upcoming election, or anything you'd like to say about the Labour Party in general before we start wrapping things up? I yeah, well, I think from this podcast, we've seen the Labour Party evolve from all sorts, from being just a small, humble, mining, you know, representation of mining to a political powerhouse and yeah you know things haven't been easy for us you know we spent over now over a decade of Tory um, of Tory leadership and austerity and foolishness and incompetence and greed and corruption and I think you know Tony Blair said you know it's the it's it's a national it's a national duty to have a strong opposition to government challenge it and I think you know, with Corbyn and a few other people like Miliband, excuse me, we didn't have that. But I think now with Keir at the helm, I do think we have a strong government, a government we can think. You know, it's like the old song. They, Tony Blair had the song saying, uh, in his election, things can only get better by dream. And I do believe now things can only get better 
things do seem bad at the moment with the, co- with the cost of crisis, uh, what's going on in Ukraine, and, you know, about, you know, a lot of other things, and the climate crisis, education, and how we as a society have developed through our mental health through uh, COVID, because it has affected our mental health. But I'm, I'm telling you now, listeners, as a person who's always been passionate about Labour, and has always and has and is a member and is able to be in politics. Things can only get better, and there will be time again when we do we do win a majority like ninety seven, and we change people's lives, and uh, you know, and we change people's lives for the better, and we become a country not like a laughing stock how we are now, but a country we can be proud of, putting the great back into Great Britain. Well, you know, thank you for those de- words there, Dill. You know, I yeah, really no felt you really did mean those words. And knowing yeah. you as a person, you know, you're so passionate about yeah. Labour and you want Labour to succeed. And you genuinely want Labour, the Labour Party, to help improve people's lives. That's what you we're know. there. That's our goal. Change people's lives for the better and give back and help each other. Yeah, exactly. So I just want to say thank you for um, thank you for your wise words of wisdom throughout this podcast and uh your information as you as you know no you know more than you knew more than me obviously yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah so i just want to thank you for that and um also just you know i want to thank the listeners for listening as well so as this has been the misunderstood world podcast um i'm bill and uh as i say thank you for listening and uh, i'll see you soon hopefully see you now goodbye guys take care